If you've been with us or not, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about that first wave when the people of Israel were in exile for 70 years under the Babylonian rule. And then when Persia beat up Babylonian and took over, we read that God stirred the heart of the Persian king and stirred the heart of the people. And the first wave of people that came to Jerusalem to reestablish Jerusalem, the temple to worship, uh, was Zerubbabel and the first uh, 50,000 or so people, which was less than 10% of all the people that was in Babylon. And if you remember, um, people just got comfortable being in Babylon. They started making good wage. They started doing well for 70 years. Some of them were born there. They didn't know anything else, and they were comfortable. And now Zerubbabel, he, his whole focus was worship, rebuilding the altar, rebuilding the temple, and we looked at that was his very first uh, priority was to establish an altar to observe the Feast of Tents or Festival of Tabernacles, laying the foundation of the temple. And then the Israelites face opposition. Shocker. If you remember from last week, people said, hey, can we help you rebuild the temple? And they were like, no, you're, no thanks. You don't really uh, believe in God. Um, and then, of course, they got upset. And then there was a lot of conflict uh, as they faced that opposition. So much so that they wrote letters and they discouraged them. And we talked all about that. Um, and then now the Israelites were at a standstill for 16 years. And then after 16 years, they finally were able to finish the temple. Uh, and just to put it in a, in a nutshell, it took them 20 years to do a four-year job. But they finally got it done. And again, over the last several weeks, we have been looking at how God works despite opposition and how he works despite the lack of people. I don't know about you, but um, whenever I'm trying to do something new, I want as many people to come, regardless of what it is. I, I just, I'm such an includer. I want a lot of people to join, and I want us to have fun. And if it's not fun and there's not a lot of people... Oh, man. I remember the first time I coached hockey. I haven't talked about hockey in a while, so you're good. Um, there was only five people who wanted to be on my team that I was coaching. Now, if you don't know anything, you need five people plus a goalie, so that doesn't work. But what we are seeing here and what we've seen is over and over again, despise opposition, despise the lack of people wanting to come out less than 10%, despise the, the time that it takes. God is still good. And he still works through his people. And one of the things that I've also noticed is, uh, just for me personally, is deadlines are a wonderful thing. However, sometimes it's real easy to put artificial deadlines and get real disappointed. Anyone ever promise that they'd finish that project at their house by the end of the week? And it's sitting there three months later? And how discouraged you can get. Well, here we are, we're picking up where we, where we left off. They finally finished the temple after 20 years. And today we pick up the story in Ezra 7 and 8. And last week, again, just we looked at a timeline of Ezra. And the book covers a, st a stand -up strand of 100 years with five different kings. And if you recall, that the authors of the Old Testament wrote in literary narrative linking stories and themes together to explain different situations rather than write it in chronological order. I heard it described this way in the Old Testament. It's as if you're watching a movie or reading a book that does flashbacks and flash forwards and you get dizzy. 
But again, Ezra was talking about the main difference between the hardship they face covering the 100 years. So this morning, if you look at your Bible and you go from chapter 6, turn to chapter 7, we've just flash forward 70 years, just like that. So what's happened? And there's a timeline, I think. Yep. So we've already covered Esther two years ago. Of course, you remember that. But um, what happens is they finish the temple. Nothing really happens. Then Haman, if you remember him, he was the enemy against the Jewish people, tried to kill them all. The story of Esther, she marries Asuerus or Xerxes. And then if you remember that story, she comes before the king without, uh, without granting permission and she saves everybody. And once she saves everybody, then we looked at Ezra 4 and 6. And as you can see, it's jumping around. And where we pick up is right where Esther leads off. So if you can picture that in your mind, we've now just jumped that 70 years. Now consider this for a moment. The remnant of the people who came to Israel came back to Jerusalem to finish the foundation of the temple. Ezra saves the day. Esther, excuse me, saves the day. She marries Xerxes. It's a wonderful story. Um, and then uh, we tend to move pretty quickly. But, but before we, I jump ahead, because I like to jump ahead, let's just imagine the timeline that we've seen real quick. And this is how I wrote it. I just wrote, God stirs the heart of the people. People respond. There's opposition. The people think, oh no, how are we going to get out of this? Oh yeah, there's God. God saves the day by using some of the very same people who thought, oh no, how are we going to get out of this? And he uses the people least likely to be used, but someone who's simply faithful. Then the people rejoice. Yay, God is good. People get complacent. They stray away. They backslide. They sin. God stirs the heart of the people. People respond. There's opposition. You see this over and over and over again. And now, with all of that, enter Ezra. Now, consider for a moment who Ezra is. We get a brief glimpse of who it is from verse 6. After we get this long list of all these names, because it's very important for lineage purposes, especially when you're talking about a priest or a Levite, so at the very end, it talks about that he is ultimately, from verse 5, son of Elazar and son of Aaron the high priest. Therefore, he is a priest. He's a priest and a scribe. Yet, now imagine this, he is a priest and a scribe in Babylon. He's a priest or a pastor who has no church, but yet he's still a priest. And he probably was born right after the first group of people left for Jerusalem. He's never been to Jerusalem. Again, he was a pastor without a church. A scribe is someone who records and makes copies of the Bible or the Torah at the time and explains them and interprets them. And he had nowhere to keep them. Yet in chapter 7, it opens up with a list of names to show you that he is an heir to Aaron, the brother of Moses, the first high priest. So the first question that came to my mind is, have you ever been called to be faithful, yet you didn't know where to do it? That was Ezra. Ezra was in the lineage to be a high priest, a priest, and yet there was nowhere for him to do it. Yet, as we read, he was faithful in it. Now, I don't know about you, 
But if I was called to be something, but I didn't get to do it, that would be very difficult. You're called to be a mechanic, but there's no cars to work on. Called to be a pastor, there's no church to work at. Called to be a farmer, there's no land to till. You get the point. But yet, God's faithful. Now, we didn't read it for the sake of time, but in verse 12 begins this whole letter of permission given to Ezra to continue the work. Because although there's a temple, there's no one to preach God's word. There's no one to fulfill the role of the high priest. Because if you remember at this time, only the high priest can come before the Lord. And make the sacrifices. Most Old Testament scholars suggest that Ezra had a little title within the Persian kingdom, uh, equivalent to being the secretary of state for the Jewish people, if you will. And that's where he was able to get that letter. Now, if you want to read what the letter says, you can read it on your own from verses 11 to 26. And it's just basically, I, the king, give you permission to go do what you said you wanted to do. And that's pretty much it. But it's interesting that he was technically secretary of the state, but yet he was a priest. Man, can you imagine a pastor being secretary of the state? (laughs) That'd be interesting. But what we'll notice, and I briefly mentioned Esther earlier, but God tends to put people in positions that you wouldn't normally think to find his people in. Esther, the new queen of the Persian king. Later, when we get to him, Nehemiah, we read that he's a cupbearer to the Persian king. Ezra, again, is the secretary of state. I mean, we can go down the list. God always places his people right where they needed to be. And if you think about it even further, the heroes of the Old Testament are put in positions that they wouldn't normally want to be in, but they just happen to be in there, it would seem. It simply reminds us that God puts us in a place on purpose, and he's waiting for us to respond. And again, God is sovereign, yet we see Ezra's desire to help rebuild, and him, he specifically wants to focus on the reading of God's Word. I titled the message this morning, Rebuilding Around the Word of God. The Word of God is part of worship. That's why whenever we pray and we thank God for worship, worship is not just through music. It's through His Word. It's through fellowship. It's everything that we include him in is worship. And this specifically for Ezra's desires to get back to the word of God. Now one of the most significant things about Ezra is his recognition of God working in people's life. He calls God's engagement with people the hand of God. Did you notice that? We read it a couple of times. I think uh, perhaps... Uh, in the passages, um, what I, I read through this preparing for the series, and I missed it. I missed it completely. I saw the hand of God a couple of times, but I didn't realize that it's in there six times. I think I mentioned the theologian and pastor Colin Smith from Scotland. He's the one who pointed this out. And the hand of God is mentioned six different times. And I believe the main purpose that Ezra mentions this, the hand of God, is to remind the readers that it is about God. And it wasn't about Zerubbabel, it's a beginning. It's not about him, Ezra, and it won't be about Nehemiah. It's always about God. It's always God's story. So this morning I want to point out what the hand of God does in people's life and the fascination people have had trying to depict or explain the hand of God. 
uh, one of the ways that you can understand where people feel or respond to their faith throughout the centuries is through art. People throughout history has attempted to explain God or their faith or whatever it is through art, through whatever kind of medium that they use. And you, if you take a moment, you will consider that people have always tried to explain the hand of God through paintings and sculptures and stories. Perhaps one of the most famous one is from Michelangelo's painting called The Creation of Adam. I think I have a picture here of just the hands, just to keep it rated G, but this was painted in 1512. you recognize that painting? That is God's right hand just about to touch Adam's hand. Now, this is called The Creation of Adam, so he's being created. It's God's right hand. That's one of probably the famous one. Here's a, here's a lesser-known one. This is from a church in Spain. I don't know who the artist is, but many from about the 1200s all the way on, you'll see a right hand or a right arm with no body. Creepy. But what you'll notice here, and I, I don't want to belabor the point more than I have, but you'll notice that in art and in history and story is always showing the right hand of God. Why the right hand of God? You remember the disciples asked to be on the right and the left hand of Jesus? Remember where Jesus returned to? The right hand of God. So you'll notice that when the right hand is depicted as Jesus' hand, you'll notice that Jesus' hand is like this. His, his pointer finger and middle finger are out, and his thumb, his ring finger, and pinky is cross. What do you think that is? It's representing the cross of Christ. So now every time you see a painting or a sculpture, look to see if you want to know if it's supposed to be God or Jesus, just look for that. And that's a general rule of thumb. And the reason why is that you'll, you, one of the reasons why is throughout history, and I don't have to prove this to you, it's been difficult to be a Christian. And sometimes opposition was so bad that Christians had to be in hiding. And one of the ways that they identified with one another is if before they went to shake hands or greet each other, is they made the symbol of Christ before they shook hands. Before or after that, uh, or excuse me, before that, they used to, before they met, they used to draw the fish or half of the fish, the Iticus. I would draw half of it in the sand. And if you came and drew the other side of the fish, I knew that you were a Christian and you were welcomed into my home. So the right hand of God has always been, has always been uh, a desire for people to explain, to describe. It's basically how does God interact with people? And Ezra describes it as the hand of God. Of God. Now let's take that with that in mind. Let's take a look at what the hand of God does according to Ezra. And we're going to be covering Ezra 7 and 8, and I'll point out the main uh, text here in which he des describes this just real quick, and then we'll get to what that means for us. Ezra 7, verse 6. This is when the opposition gave Ezra what he needed because of the hand of God. And it reads, he came up to Jerusalem from Babylon, and the king gave him everything he asked for because the gracious hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Because the gracious hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. This is when Ezra went and asked to continue the rebuild. Ezra 9, or excuse me, Ezra 7, verse 9. 
He makes the 900-mile journey, four-and-a-half-month journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. And it reads, He had arranged to leave Babylon on April 8th, the first day of the new year, and he arrived at Jerusalem on August, for the gracious hand of God was on him. Ezra 7, verse 28. He's encouraged while he's standing in front of the king and the mighty nobles asking for permission. And praise him for demonstrating such unfailing love to me by honoring me before the king, his council, and all of his mighty nobles. I felt encouraged because the gracious hand of the Lord my God was on me. And I gathered some of the leaders of Israel to return with me to Jerusalem. Later in chapter 8, there is a list of people who were part of the second wave of people who returned. And what you'll notice if you, if you take time to go back and look at it is between chapter 8 and chapter 2 of Ezra, there's a list of the people who went. It's very organized, very list. But if you put them side by side, you'll be able to draw a line and circle and draw a line and circle and see that many of the people's family later on returned. It's interesting and it should be encouraging to us that, that again, this is about... 80 years after the first return. Can you imagine the first wave of people as they were going, trying to encourage their brothers and sisters, their aunts and uncles, saying, come on, let's go. And they're like, no thanks. I'm comfortable here. And imagine if that second wave came and then you saw your aunt, who's now really, really old, finally showing up. Yesterday, I had the privilege of being part of a memorial service and uh, Albina, we were told and understand that she came to Christ at the age of 49. There is hope. There is hope. Continue on with the hand of God. Ezra 8, 18. When there weren't any Levites at all who wanted to return, and we'll talk about a little bit more about what that meant. It reads in verse 18, Ezra 8, 18. Since the gracious hand of our God was on us, they sent us a man named Sherban along with 18 of his sons and brothers. He was a very astute man and a descendant of Mali, who was a descendant of Levi, son of Israel. And we'll talk about why that's important. They show up to start church and they don't have any pastors. Well, that doesn't work. Ezra 8, 22 and 23. Ezra says that he feels ashamed to ask for help. Anyone here really good at asking for help? Anyone here try to lift a couch all by themselves because they didn't want to ask for help? Yeah, me too. I remember, no, I won't tell that story. For I was ashamed, verse 22, for I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to accompany us and protect us for enemies along the way. After all, we had told the king our God's hand of protection is on all who worship him, but his fierce anger rages against those who abandon him. So we fastened, earnest, prayed that our God would take care of us, and he heard our prayer. And last one, eight, Ezra 8, verse 31, the hand of God against enemies. And it reads, we broke camp at the Aha Canal on April 19th and started off to Jerusalem, and the gracious hand of God protected us and saved us from the enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived safely in Jerusalem, where we rested for three days. And quickly, I just want to make three observations about the hand of God. And the first one is the hand of God gives us courage. Gives us courage. It's hard to deal with one king saying, no, 
Stop the rebuild process. That's it. There's been enough complaints. You remember from last week, the people, the enemies of Israel lied and said they're just building a temple so they can build their own kingdom. And by the way, they're not going to pay taxes. Now that's a big deal for a king. But Ezra had to ask for permission. He had to come and go into the presence of the king who just told him to stop and ask for permission. And one day he was given an appearance and it says in front of all of the people of the court. Can you imagine that? You going alone in front of high-ranking officials who just told you no and you asked them to change their mind. Now, politically speaking, politicians don't like to change their mind, do they? No. But this is what he's doing. He's saying, the hand of God, I'm coming to you. Uh, the hand of God is on me. I'm going to go in front, of these pe- in, in front of these people. I just want to be faithful. And you go alone, and it's just you. And you have to talk about God. And not only do you have to talk about God, but you also need to ask for a favor. Can you reverse your policy that is against God? That's what Ezra was facing. And he says, I took courage, for the hand of my God was on me. It was as if God put his arm around Ezra and said, I'm here with you right here and right now. You can do this. You can be faithful. And essentially, really what I've noticed about having courage in God It really is being faithful. It's being faithful and you're saying, all right, God, not only am I going to be faithful, but I'm faithful because you are. But I'm going to leave the results up to you. And essentially God's saying, here's my arm wrapped around you. You be faithful and I'll take care of the king. You remember back in Acts when we did that series, all the time Paul went in front of kings and the court and over and over again he had to give a testimony. And three different times he said, and I was alone except for Christ. Courage. God stood with me. So the question here, the application question to ask yourself, where in your life do you need courage? Where in your life do you need courage? Is there something that you've been kicking down the road Saving for another day. And when that other day comes, you just kick that can down the road a little bit further. Do you need courage in a conversation that you've been avoiding for days, weeks, years? Are you avoiding a situation altogether? Is there a hardship that you're avoiding? I would suggest that we all need some kind of encouragement. And the best kind time kind of encouragement is the time that we fill out our lowest. But the hand of God moves. Essentially, the hand of God depicted in just a couple of those pictures that I showed you is essentially people's desire to know that God is with them. The second one, the hand of God moves us to serve. The hand of God moves us to serve. If you look at uh, Ezra eight fifteen and 18. Well, back up real quick. We didn't read it, but he gathers the people at the end of chapter 7. They're all excited, ready to go, and he asks people to come with them. And again, there's that long list of names and families who join the families. 
In verse 15, it reads, I assembled the exiles at Avicanel, and we were camped there for three days while I went over the list of people and the priest who had arrived. And here's the point. I found that not one Levite had volunteered to come along. Not one. Not one single Levite. See, Levi, if you remember, was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. His descendants are called Levites. Levites were called to vocational ministry, which simply means full-time ministry, no other job. They were 100% supported by the tithes and offering of God's people. Their job was to take care of the tabernacle or the temple, and all of them had this calling to a vocational ministry. And who do you think would be the first people who would want to go back to the temple? The Levites, right? Ezra's the priest because he's in the lineage of Aaron. The Levites are all of the temple workers, all of the staff members, if you will, all of the janitors, everything that had to work for the church, the temple. Wouldn't you think that they would be the first ones to sign back up and saying, finally, I can fulfill what I've been called to do? But they did not. Not a single one wanted to come. But why not? In the first wave, out of the 50,000 people or so that came back, only 341 Levites came. In the second wave, not a single Levite came. See, the priest of Aaron clearly acquired the sole right to Jewish priesthood. Those who performed the services associated with the worship and getting everything organized were the Levites. And the reason they didn't want to come is because simply they started making a lot of money in Babylon. And they were scared that once they went to Jerusalem, they would have to give it all up. Because in Deuteronomy 18, it talks about out of all of the children of Israel... Levites are the only ones who do not have the right to land. To be a Levite was a costly privilege, an oxymoron, if you will. It was a privilege because they got to serve God 100% of their working life. It was costly because they weren't allowed to own anything. Levites did not get a portion of the promised land like the other tribes. Levites simply lived at the temple and prayed every day that people would show up and take care of their needs. A costly privilege. I do wonder, thinking about being called to vocational ministry, I do wonder if anyone here has ever felt the call to full-time ministry. Uh Uh-oh, dangerous words when the pastors say that and everyone looks down. It's like every time a, a missionary came when I was a kid, Whatever country they came from was the country I was going to next week. But I do really honestly wonder, I was thinking about this. I I remember my calling. I've told you that a few different times, how I ran away. And I said, you got the wrong guy. I don't want to be a poor pastor. I want to be an engineer. I ran away from my calling. I sympathize and identify as a Levite. Nope, I'm good. Thanks. But I do wonder if someone in here is filling a call to ministry or full-time, really full-time vocation is what I'm talking about. I mean, we do have kids in service and 
you know, the size of our church, regardless of what it is, I would imagine and I hope and pray that there's at least one or two that are feeling called to ministry. But I do wonder for anyone, regardless if, if you're five or 105, if you feel like you've been called to ministry but you have avoided it. Now for everybody else, those who are not called to full-time vocational ministry, you're not off the hook. You are called to serve because the hand of God is with you. But for those, and I'm going to belabor this point because if you're like me, you're thick-headed and it takes a while for it to sink in. But if you have any questions about full-time vocation, I would love to talk to you about it. And that description, a costly privilege, is 100% what it is to be a pastor, full-time ministry. So there was no Levites that came. And Ezra was looking around and thinking, well, how are we going to have church if we don't have the people to do church? So what he does is he asks God. He says, send us someone, please. Is there someone that feels God's calling is there someone willing to give up their life for what they're called to do? Ezra 8.17, send us ministers for the house of our God. We need these people. Bring them. We need them. In verse 18 of Ezra 8, since the gracious hand of God was on us, they sent us a man named Sherebim along with 18 of his sons and brothers. He was a very astute man and descendant of Mali, who was a descendant of Levi, son of Israel. God sent what they needed. And not only did they sent a man, they sent 18 of his sons and brothers. Have you ever been in that situation where God came through at the very last minute, the very last second, the very last, like, split, split second? And there it was. Because according to Jewish tradition, if they would have showed up without Levites, they would have not been allowed to enter in the temple. And there's a lot of application for us. Can you imagine that we have this building, but we weren't allowed to go into it? Obviously, we are not uh, under the Levitical law. So if I died or something happened to me, someone else can fill, fill in. But can you imagine just walking by, driving by every day for a build, to a building that you couldn't use? That's what, have, what would have happened. But yet, God, as Ezra says, his gracious hand of God. And finally, the hand of God felt through his word. In Ezra 7, verse 9 and 10, he, Ezra, had arranged to leave Babylon on April 8th, the first day of the new year, and he arrived at Jerusalem on August, for the gracious hand of God was on him. This was because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. You notice that he was already being a high priest before he had a temple to be a high priest? He was born in Babylon... He was called to the ministry, and yet he prepared until his time was ready. 
So the gracious hand of God was on him. Why? Because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and teach those decrees and regulations to the people. Encouragement through God's word. I think it's real easy to underestimate God's word and the power that it has. Not just for studying. Not just to get smarter in the head. Not just to look at pictures and talk about cool little crosses, fingers. But God's word changes your heart. It also prepares you to what you've been called to do. Ezra was prepared to be the second leader of this wave of people to come into Jerusalem and reestablish the temple because he had already determined to study and obey God before he noticed God's hand on him. That should be an encouragement to us. That God's hand is always with us and it's guiding us. And it's a lot easier to recognize his hand on us when we're in his word, when we spend time with him, when we're in prayer, when we come together and gather, when we worship as a community individually and in our families. It does remind me, this hand of God, of George Mueller. If you know the story of George Mueller, he was... He was the guy that started the orphanage. And part of what he did is starting the orphanage is he never let the need be known. He only prayed about the need. And, and I was trying to look to see exactly how many people, George and his wife Mary Mueller, how many uh, children they adopted in their orphanage. And it's and it's over 10,000, it's estimated, that's been impacted by his orphanages, even well after he died. And perhaps one of the most famous stories of George Mueller is, again, that he would never necessarily advertise or try to ask for money. He just believed in, in the Word of God. He believed in prayer, and he always believed that the hand of God would supply. And here's his story. They were at the end of, their, of the week, and they completely ran out of food. And they had over a hundred children to feed. So one morning, he and his wife and the O's who were helping put the plates and the cups and the bowls on the table for breakfast. But they were empty. There was no food. There was no money to buy food. And the children were standing and waiting for their morning meal. When Mueller said, children... You know, we must be in time for school. Then lifting up his hands, he prayed, Dear Father, we thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. There wasn't anything to eat. He said, I ask you for your strong hand to supply our needs. Amen. And at that amen, a knock on the door. There was a baker that stood there and said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast. And the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread and have it brought over. Do you think you can use them? Mr. Mueller thanked the baker. And no sooner did the baker leave when there was a second knock at the door. And it was the milkman. He had announced that his milk cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage. 
And he, and he would like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so he can empty his wagon and repair it. Mr. Mueller, George Mueller's wife later on would say, we always expected God to come through, even at the last minute. The hand of God is real. And we can be assured of that. So if you're sitting here and you're considering whatever it is, if you need encouragement to handle something, the hand of God is with you. If you're facing a situation that you don't know how to get out of it, the God, hand, God of hand is with you. If you're feeling called to vocational ministry, God's hand is with you. If you're, about, if you're planning on leaving uh, this afternoon from church and you have to f- face a hard conversation, the hand of God is with you. Who knows? Maybe the baker or the milkman may come and knock on your door. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your hand. And as we've seen you work um, in our lives and um, in the lives of the people of the Bible and in the lives of our neighbors, our brothers and sisters, and we do recognize and notice that you are sovereign and you are in control, and we thank you for that, Lord. And Lord, forgive us when, when we are without faith, when we come to the end of our rope and we think there's nowhere to go, and yet you come through despite our best efforts or our lack of our efforts, Lord. Lord, it's remarkable to see that you um, led Ezra and the second wave of people to continue to rebuild your city that would eventually be destroyed. Thank you for the reminder that it is not about the things that we do, but it is about you and your desire to have a relationship with us. Lord, I do pray for anyone in here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that doesn't know about this relationship, that doesn't know about your hand that you're calling and stirring them. And again, Lord, I do pray for anyone who feels called to full-time ministry or anything that that you've called them to do that's been avoiding it or made excuses. Lord, you are faithful even when we're not. So Lord, will you speak to us as we continue to worship you through a few more songs. Thank you for your word and your Holy Spirit that guides us. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.